Uh, well, let's go now um, to God's Word. I, I am wrapping up this series on that we've entitled Coexist, Tolerance, or Love. Jesus, the fog in the midst of the storm. And uh, we have addressed about every controversial topic you can possibly address, and today is um, no exception. But if you're here today and you're visiting, especially if you don't buy Christianity and you don't buy the church, um, um, I just want to apologize to you, and I mean this sincerely. And and I feel like I've been doing this throughout this sermon series. Uh, But as we wrap it up, I, I just want you to hear that The church has blown it in so many ways. In how we've dealt with sex and gender primarily, we have really blown it. And um, the reason that we have addressed these issues um, is because we feel like we need to rewrite um, what... That's not a good way to say it. We need to be a community that is different. Um, not abandoning the truth of God, but certainly reflecting the truth of God in a way that smells like Jesus, in a way that that smells of his love, smells of his sacrifice. Uh, The culture crucified Christ. They hated him um, primarily because he said, I'm God and I'm loving. Uh, I'm God and I'm accepting. I'm God and I'm willing to cross gender boundaries and and show that women have respect in culture and so forth. I mean, there's so many uh, examples of this in the Scriptures. And so I just want to apologize and I want you to hear that what we're saying today, what I'm saying today, comes from that and a real genuine desire to see the church do better. Um, So let's go now. And I'm just going to read... 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3, and then 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 28. Because we've really jumped out of 1 Corinthians in our series. Or we've used 1 Corinthians as a springboard into this series. And we see that in this culture of Corinth, which was uh, coming apart, um, was uh, and you could see it in the in the way in the way the church was dealing with sex and gender and really uh, conforming to the culture and so forth. Um, we see it also in this whole area of gender and what is the role of men and women and so forth. And so, uh, let's look at First Corinthians eleven one through three. Paul writes this: Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. Oh, buddy. And the head of Christ is God. And then we jump over to 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you, brothers and sisters, is to have a hymn or a word of instruction a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the three, uh, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let's go to the Lord before we dive into this. Father, we thank you that you are the God of your church, that you are the God of this world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing from all eternity, love flowing between each person, 
existing in a community of love and acceptance and mutual glorifying nature that one day, someday, when we behold that glory, when we behold your community, when we behold uh, your relationship in the Godhead, we will be humbled, we will be changed forever and ever and ever. And so, God, right now, I pray that you would give us a glimpse into who you are, that we might be the people that you called us to be. We need you, O God. Holy Spirit, I need you this morning to speak clearly, to teach your word accurately. Father, there are so many missteps I could take this morning. It is a minefield. And so, Father, I beg that your spirit would guide me this morning. I need you. And yet, in the midst of it all, Lord Jesus, would you be exalted and would we be humbled by your presence? Would we come under your lordship and allow you to be the voice that we listen to and not the voice of the world and not the voice of our flesh, not the voice of our education? But, oh God, may we come to you and may you speak and may we listen and may you form us into the community that you would have us be. Oh God, we desire your glory. And so work that out in our hearts now and in our community of downtown church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime Thursday, uh, Derek, Lucy, and I will step off the plane and our feet will will be in uh, Delhi, India. And I have a feeling it will be an immediate response of, Oh, buddy, we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, I don't think that we'll look around and say, oh, this feels like home. I think that we will look and we will see that this is different. That we have entered a different community, a different world, and a different culture. And in a big degree, that is how the world should feel when they step into the life of the church. Because you see... Jesus and his teaching and and the Bible and Christianity is not just a self-help tool for you to maximize your ability to be a human being. But the whole goal of, of the gospel, the whole goal of God's word, the whole goal of redemption and the very work of Jesus Christ is to create his church, which is a body, which is a city within a city. We are to be a light on a hill that beckons others in the world to come and to be a part that they might understand and see how life is lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that is why corporate and not just individual repentance is so important. Because we can't just say, okay, I'm I'm here and I've just got to figure out what I believe. In the church, God says, you guys get along as brothers and sisters. How you relate to one another is what's going to preach to the world more than anything, not just how you live individually in your isolated world. How we live is as important, if not more important, as, as how I live individually. You get it? And so as we come to this topic of gender, as we began to see last week, and this is a, a two-part deal, so you really do need to listen to last week uh, before you throw a stone that's too big and, and, and throw it at me too fast. You need to, last week balances this week and corrects a lot of things probably, I would assume. 
But as we begin to talk about this whole idea of gender, we've got to understand that where we are in the church today is probably a better place, but how we got here is not very good. We saw that at the heart of coexist tolerance message is really feminism. And a lot of great things have come from feminism. I'm not here to bash feminism. Um, a lot of good things happened, and a lot of things in terms of equal dignity and equal rights and so forth have been extremely good. And the, the church, which is always late to catch on, has caught on to a large degree. But the way that we practice, even though our practice has changed, we haven't got to where we are strategically and biblically. We've been drug along into it. And therefore, as I said last week, when I even begin to talk about gender, man, people's fists come out and they're ready. Why? Because we don't know how to think biblically because the church hasn't taught us or, or spoken about it. We've just kind of been drug along. So what we must do as, as believers in Jesus Christ, and I really am speaking to the church today, is, is we the, who call ourselves Christians, we must come under not the, the, the explanations and policies of our HR department at work, and not under the jargon of, of politics and um, the, the gender, um, you know, class on gender 101 at the university, but we must come under the Word of God and say, teach me, recreate, reform, help me to think biblically about myself as a man, about myself as a woman, and about us together in the church, in marriage, and in the workplace. And so as we move into that, let's first see that we've got some work to do in terms of our idolatry. None of us in this room this morning are just neutral. And so a biblical practice of gender roles begins by identifying our gender idolatry. You have to admit, if we're going to see some progress, all of us in this room have to admit that we have some idolatry going on. It's not just misinformation. It's idolatry when it comes to gender differences and gender role. And there, there are really two extremes. There's a right extreme and a left extreme. Right extreme, left extreme. Let's get that right. And on the right extreme, you have uh, traditionalist idolatry. And the traditionalist idolatry, which we explained a lot last week, and you'll hear me say that a lot, what we did last week. That's why you got to listen to it. Um, but the traditionalist idolatry says a woman's place is in the home and a man's place is in the workplace. And the two don't cross. Men don't do dishes. Men don't change diapers. <laughs> you know? And uh, the traditionalist approach um, is that way because it draws very rigid lines between the sexes and between um, gender roles and how we practice them. This is easily debunked by Scripture. Hear me. Easily debunked, not by what the world says, but by what, but what the Word of God says. If you look at Genesis 1.26, the very... Um, foundational core teaching on gender, you see that in, you see, the Bible says this, in the image of God, God created them, male and female, he created them. So gender is, is not um, some byproduct of sin, gender is uh, God's design to reflect his glory in the world. If you're a man, God made you a man, and that's how you are to image God. If you were a woman, God made you a woman, and that's how you are to image God. 
In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And then right after that, in, in 127, Genesis 127, we read, And so God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Culture and society, God says, from the very beginning, is built by a partnership, a complementary partnership between men and women, male and female, working together. Men can't do it alone. Women can't do it alone. We are together. In fact, who was it that was deficient in and of themselves? It was the man. The man couldn't handle being alone, and therefore God brought forth woman. And he brought forth a woman who was not uh, just to be sitting in the kitchen, but the Greek word, excuse me, the Hebrew word and uh, and structure there for helper, because God did say, "I will make a helper." And today, oh, uh-uh. I'm no helper. Listen, a helper was like a warrior, a, someone to walk beside you, a fellow warrior who is fighting with and for you. You see, we can fight with and for one another, and the product is much better. That's when we start fighting against each other and for ourselves that things get messy. But it was designed for man and woman to be together fighting with and for one another for the glory of God in the garden. You can also go to Proverbs 31 and see this whole traditionalist idolatry debunked. Because there you do see a wife held up, um, and she is um, very proficient in terms of the home and in terms of child rearing, but she's also a businesswoman. She buys a field and she makes a profit. She's in real estate. And... Both all of those things are held up. And I want you to know that, you know, if there's anybody weak in that picture, it is the man, because it seems like all the man does is sit at the gate and he's at the envy. Uh, he's the envy of all the other men, because look at his wife, man. She's working, she's making the money, she's doing the... He's like, man, you're just some lazy bum sitting at the gate, you know, acting like you're doing something, you know. I mean, that's almost the picture of Proverbs 31. So how in the world we, as uh, in the traditionalist idolatry camp, have gotten this picture of weak women and strong men, I don't know. Um, You have to do a lot of work, and you have to really be determined not to hear what the passage is saying. So a traditionalist has created an idolatry of gender by exaggerating the differences and making rigid gender roles. Uh, We said last week that the gospel frees us from defining our roles. In defining the model of precisely how it is to be carried out. Because we don't have to win. We don't have to live within the, the, the structure of I'm doing it right. Because we know that we are uh, declared right and righteous through the finished work of Jesus, not through how we do gender roles. The error traditionalists make is not showing... The differences, but exaggerating the differences. Well, Jesus came on the scene as well. We can see the Old Testament teaching, but Jesus came on the scene as well. And he models the same kind of equal dignity and stance. He treated women that were oppressed by the culture and oppressed by religion with great respect. He freed that woman at the well simply by speaking to her in a dignified uh, way. As a man made in the image of God, she made in the image of God. 
recognizing equal dignity and equal worth, he freed her that day. Because society told her she was nothing but somebody who just goes to the well and get water. The sinful woman who broke into Simon the Pharisee's house, Jesus freed her by allowing her to worship him and touch him. And yet he clearly told her, uh, leave here and sin no more. He was saying, woman, you have, you have lived a sinful life. You have sought identity out of, your, out of getting sex from men and controlling men with your body. But let me tell you something, you're worth a whole lot more than that. You don't need a man to make you worthy. Isn't that beautiful? How many women need to hear that today? We could go on and on and on. Jesus, in a sense, was a feminist in his day because he was standing for equal rights. And then the traditionalist model fails because it leaves no room for uh, singleness, the validity and the, and the integrity of singleness. Well, um, hello, Jesus was single. That's a problem for traditionalist idolatry. Because traditionalist idolatry is no different from Hindu um, idolatry when it comes to gender roles or Islamic um, idolatry when it comes to gender roles where a woman has no worth except for uh, being defined as a wife. And I know if you're a Christian woman and you're single and you're working and you have felt judged, you have felt less than because we the church have made you feel that way. We've not defined your role. And I'm sorry. (laughs) And we need to do better, and we need to do better together. So that's the traditionalist idolatry. And so men and women, you see, it's cowardly. It's safe. It's easy. So it's easy for a man to go into that. It's easy for a woman just to accept it and just try to figure it out. No. We need to repent. And I don't know what that looks like to you. I don't know what that looks like for me. It scares me what it looks like to me in a lot of ways. Because we've got to be repenting, repenting, repenting. It's not like, oh, I get it now. I'm perfect. No. Ongoing repentance. Secondly, the second idolatry is more liberal idolatry. We can call it deconstructionist idolatry. I don't know what you call it, but I'm just going to call it liberal idolatry. Um, I just am. So, just a definition. It's just a title. Um, It's rooted in the idea that maleness and femaleness are indistinguishable and there are no differences. I can do anything a man can do and my whole identity in life is to prove that I can do anything a man can do. And typically, this is a a response against years of oppression, years of, of, um, uh, you know, feeling uh, uh, oppressed and stifled and and truly being oppressed and, and stifled by the church and in many other contexts. And so this is rebellion against the traditionalist gender roles by building one's identity around rejecting rejecting traditional gender roles. Now what's interesting is that the liberal bent of this gender deal um, are just as controlled by gender idolatry as the traditionalists, but they think they're completely free. Oh no, I'm freed from all that baggage of, you know, gender stuff. Oh really? Well let's talk about... Um, biblical headship and, and biblical submission. Oh, no, there's no headship or submission. We can't even talk about it because it's, a, it, it's idolatry. It's something. No, I'm not even willing to. I mean, that's just archaic. 
Um, and so the argument is more of an argument of a, you know, a judgmental, intellectual judgmental, you know, I'm smarter than you, I'm more advanced than you, you know, because I believe in women's liberation. Well, okay, well, let's talk about it biblically. Is there a ba- No, we're not going to talk about it because this is just right. And so those on the liberal side of the gender deal are not relaxed about gender at all. Uh, many who are locked into this idolatry are reacting against the traditionalist idolatry. So you have these two extremes. Now, um, let me just tell you that we're, we're all impacted by all of that. Uh, there might be some true traditionalists and some true, you know, liberal idolatrists, but I have a feeling we're just all kind of products of it all, and we don't know what in the world, you know, help me, preacher, give me something, you know. Um, and so how do we begin to think about this? And the gospel really is power for today, not just yesterday, to really make changes. And that's for somebody 50 years old, and that's for somebody 18 or 25 year old. Uh, so let's look at it. Uh, the second thing we need to see as we begin to kind of move into this is the dance of the Trinity is the context of understanding and applying gender roles. The dance of the Trinity. You've got to have a model. My wife Rachel is taking an online class in art. Now, why is that? Because she's horrible in art? No, because she wants to get better. Because she's, you know, she knows that to sit under someone's authority willingly who can lead her along is going to lead to more freedom, not to bondage. Proverbs 12:15 says, "The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice." I'm coaching Mike Weinbrenner in his church plant in Horn Lake. Now, why am I doing that? Because he's a fool and an idiot and he doesn't have... No, I mean, he teaches me, I feel like, every time we meet, more than I'm teaching him. But why is he doing that? Because he knows that the product of of two heads coming together and someone that's been there, at least, is going to be a better product in the end than just him saying, oh, I got it all wrapped up. And so when we come to this whole thing of gender, if we're going to open our mind and open our hearts and we're going to begin to move into the freedom of what God has called us to do and be in the church and in marriage and out in the world, then we have to say there must be a model, and there is, and it's called the Trinity. In Genesis 1.26, we read this, and I'll say it again. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female created He them. Before us, before church, before community, before society, before culture, God existed from all eternity. And He existed in a perfect relationship of community. Father, Son, and Spirit. Equal in being, equal in dignity, equal in personhood. And yet, existing in this Authoritarian structure, if you will. Father, Son, Spirit. And so it's not our role to try to figure out um, how to do gender and what our roles are. We've got to go back there because that's what the Bible does. We've got to say, teach me what, what it looks like. We have to understand that to throw off traditionalist models of gender roles is not the same thing as throwing off God's design. 
For the traditionalist model is not God's design, but the church's distortion, even perversion of God's design. God's design is rooted in God, thus the relationship of the Trinity. Now, let me say that another way. We, mustn't underst- we must understand that to throw off liberal models of gender roles is not the same as, as um, becoming a traditionalist. Now, you see where I'm going with this? To hold up the models in our lives, to hold up wherever we are, um, we don't need to be scared. We need to understand that there's a, a third way, if you will, and it's the Trinity. God is calling us not to be, okay, does this mean if I'm not a traditionalist that I've got to be a liberal? If this, you know, does this mean if I believe what you're saying, does this mean that I have to become a traditionalist? No, both models are bad in, in many ways. And so what I'm calling you to is something that maybe you've never considered. It's this third way. It's called the life of the Trinity. Listen to what Tim Keller said in The Reason for God. Ultimate reality is a a community of persons who know and love one another. That's what the universe, God, history, and life is all about. If you favor money, power, and accomplishment over human relationships, you will dash yourself on the rocks of reality. When Jesus said you must lose yourself in service to find yourself, he was recounting what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been doing throughout eternity. You will then never get a sense of self by standing still, as it were, and making everything revolve around your needs and interests. Unless you're willing to experience the loss of options and the individual limitation that comes from being in committed relationships, you, uh, you will remain out of touch with your own nature and the nature of things. In other words, we cannot live well without each other because we are made in the image of God who exists in relationship. But we also can't live well with each other unless we come under the structure that exists in the Trinity that makes the Trinity the Trinity. And that structure, we have to believe, is not oppressive when we get ourselves to it. Uh, It's not overbearing. It's not rigid. It's not all those things we fear. It's not liberal. It is beautiful. And so what I'm inviting you to this morning is to get into the life of God. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That is weird. But what he's saying is, I want you to understand that you've got to get into this dance of the Trinity where Father, Son, and Spirit are so passionately in love with the other. There is love flowing from the Father to the Son to the Spirit back to the Father, and they're all empowering each other in this dance of love and, 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 and other glorifying relationship. And that's what marriage is to be, and that's what the church is to be, and the world should take lessons from that and become a part of that as well. So the structure is beautiful, and if God can submit to it, then we have to at least say, okay, if God is is participating in this structure of headship, submission, glorifying, and it's not rigid and it's not oppressive, then surely I can be a part of it. And so thirdly and finally, gender roles have got to mirror the Trinity. And this obliterates traditionalist and liberal idolatry. 
I tried to think of some examples, and I'm not going to do very good. And it's 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 because it illustrates the truth of what I'm saying that my illustrations are not going to be very good, and therefore they're going to be very good. Now, if I confuse you, good. Um, I tried this on Rachel this morning. I didn't do very good. And so I'm not going to do very good now. But that's kind of the point. There's a sense in which, hear me, there's a sense in which when we move from Olive Branch, Mississippi to plant a church in Colorado that Rachel followed me. And maybe I drug her a little bit. But there's also a sense in which at certain stages of going from Colorado back here that I followed her. Uh, yeah, did I, was I 110% convinced that God was calling me and us back to Memphis? Absolutely. Was Rachel convinced that God was calling us to Colorado? Yes. But in terms of would she have chosen... To go to Colorado, probably not. What I've just chosen to come back to Memphis, probably not. It was in the mutual submission to one another, and in this relationship of Trinity, that both decisions were made without holding the one over each other's head. Rachel didn't go to Colorado saying, All right, I'm just going to wait for this to fail, then I can say, I got you. I told you we never should have come here. And when we come back here, you see, she was all in. And we come back here feeling both called, and yet I didn't respond to the phone calls from those trying to recruit me to come back home for three months. I was resisting because I had some idolatry going on in my life. And so, who made the decisions? I have no idea. We didn't have a court. We didn't, I didn't, I don't know. But the decisions were made, and we have lived with the decisions, and we agree with the decisions. Now, that's confusing because look at the Godhead and say, who makes the decisions? The only example that we have in Scripture of a decision being made for the Son that He didn't necessarily choose for Himself was when He was about to go to the cross and He's sweating blood thinking about receiving condemnation for the, for the sins of mankind and being uh, experiencing hell itself, utter separation from the love and, and kindness and mercy of God His Father. And He said, Father, may this cup pass from me. In modern English it says, I don't want to go to the cross. Please, no, 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 no. But not as I will, but as you will. So did the Father make him go to the cross? Yes. Did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Yes. That's confusing when it comes to, well, just give me a gender role. Just tell me how it works. I don't know how it works. And that's what, that's what it will look like, dear friends. It will look like submission. It will look like love because God can be nothing but that. The Son submitted to the Father and His submission was rooted in trust. He knew the Father would only bring good what is best. Even if He sent Him to a cross to die, it was out of love and for good. I talked to someone just yesterday whose sister is leaving her, or tried to leave, her second husband. I think I'm getting this right, and they're not in this church. 
And she had an affair with a man, or is having an affair with a man. And in the midst of it, she moves out of her house. She, she you know, breaks free of the bondage of marriage to her second husband. And then um, the guy she was having a, an affair with decided, became convicted that he was wrong, and he went back to his wife, and now she's left. And you know what her argument was in leaving her second husband? It was, you know, God doesn't want me and my children not to be happy. And so I've got to go find somebody that makes me happy. Now, here's where submission and headship. Let me just tell you something. God's ultimate goal in your life is not to give you the kind of happiness that you want in every situational context. Believe me. And if you think that's how God works, then you will not be married long. And you will have an affair. You, you, you know the thing that holds Christian marriages together? It's not, oh, I just think you're so handsome every morning that, that I wake up, hubby. Let me go. Let me go make you some breakfast. That's not marriage. That's not even honeymoon anymore. We go to all-inclusive places where we don't have to cook or anything, you know. When the rubber meets the road, is I submit to Jesus, and therefore I love you. Oh, that's not very romantic. Oh, yes, it is. You're telling me it's romantic just to say, oh, I love you in this moment, but I might be loving somebody else tomorrow night. We weren't made for that. It's destroying us. Do you hear it? it it's pleasurable. I won't deny that. Or so I'm told. I mean, I've been married 31 years. So I'm told it's pleasurable. Uh, Man, I could say a whole lot more right now and I would just keep digging. Uh, Godly leadership in life is found in saying, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. I don't understand, but I'm going to believe in you. And you've got to give me grace to love like you love. You've got to give me grace to be a husband that leads. I don't know what that means. I know what it means to my parents. I, I saw some really, you know, bad examples in their generation of domineering and, you know. Father, I don't know what it means for me to submit to my husband. I, I don't know what that means. I don't want to be oppressed. I don't want... I, But you see, it takes two people coming into the Lordship of God. And that's the key, is that submission to Christ must be there. Ongoing submission to Jesus or this whole thing falls apart. If you're in marriage or you're in the church and you're not allowing Christ to nurture your heart and to give you a desire for Him and for His leadership over your life, then this whole thing is just goes to pot. Well, how do we define it in marriage and the church? Real quickly, I'm going to wrap it up. You see why, man, this is so hard. There's so much I need to say and so much I can say, but I'm just going to wrap it up quickly. In order to be, for there to be biblical headship, and this is in the church and in the Christian home primarily, that's where God legislates. In the world, in the workplace, in the political realm, it's different. He doesn't define the roles there. He defines how we carry our role, but He doesn't define the roles. Should women, can a woman be the President of the United States in the eyes of God? Absolutely. He, this is not defining what, what goes on out there. It's defining what goes on in the household of God. 
and in Christian marriages. So, so what does it look like? What is the model? Tell us how to do it, Richard. Well, here it is. In marriage, it's a growing reality. In other words, it's not static, but it's always reshaping more and more unto the image of God. And so the biggest question is not, or the, the biggest sign of, of, of unhealth and unhealthiness is not, man, I've got questions and my wife and I are always struggling with what it looks like. That where you're really in danger is if you're in a marriage and you think you've got it figured out. You're not repenting anymore. You've become stale. You're not submitting to Jesus. You don't have what's going on in the Trinity figured out, I promise. So it has to be growing, a growing reality. And secondly, it has to be a growing reality in the church as well. The structure doesn't change. There is headship and submission. But, but let me just tell you briefly, and I'll, I'll end with this. I have watched me, I was much more in a traditionalist idolatry mode earlier in my life. No doubt about it. And yet I've seen this... I've seen me move and, and, and I hope repent and, and become different. And I've seen it in my churches. In my first church in, in Olive Branch, Mississippi, traditionalist idolatry reigned and ruled. In the next church in Colorado, traditionalist idolatry was pushed back on a little bit, but that's probably where I was. Coming back here, God has really done some stuff in my life, and it's through... Maturing, I hope, and growing. It's also through some, a lot of relationships and a lot of studying, um, with, um, other people. And so what it looks like now, intentionally, when we started this church, I said, I don't want there to be, I don't want the end result to be this image that this group of men called the elders does everything in the church. Because that's not biblical. It's not, man, the culture is going to reject us. It's that I began to really see and dig deeper and go, man, it's right there in front of me. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that men and women are serving together. There's deaconing going on together. Now, it still seems that in the Scriptures, mind you, that's the authority that there are, that the pastors, that there, that there are some leaders called elders, the shepherds, are, are, are men. And I don't know why. But that seems to be the absolute pattern of the Scriptures and the outright teaching of the Scriptures. But when it comes to work in the church, when it comes to doing diaconal ministry and engaging the culture together, men and women are doing that all the time. And even when I say about the whole elder thing, you say, oh man, there's that oppressive deal again. No. It, that's why I read 1 Corinthians um, 14 and those, those verses where every brothers and sisters are to bring a word. There's to be mutual incorporation. And so what in the world do the elders do? That should be the question. And I'll tell you this, I'm not real sure, to be honest with you, because we've structured it where there's so much shared authority and ministry and so forth, our session meetings are pretty short. We pray probably longer than anything because the Bible tells us to do that and it's important but we haven't had to make any big decisions or we're just and that's how it should be <laughs> but when a decision for church discipline when a big decision for for some other and we've got to engage it we've got to say God called us to do this not because we're better in fact, I think women would make better elders in so many situations. I really do. It's not a pragmatic thing. It's just because life is to resemble the Trinity. Could Jesus do a better job than the Father? Probably. And so, I, I mean, see, that's where we have to get into. We have to go not to our defensiveness, but to the Trinity. Okay, well, 
If it works there, then maybe there's some wisdom to it. So it's about submission, it's not about convenience. And it all goes back to, are we willing to walk under the rule of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to believe that He's good? Are we willing to believe that to live life in Him and to walk in Him will lead us to freedom and joy and life and not oppression and rigid structures? And that's the question that you have to answer this morning and as we move forward from here. May we submit our hearts to Jesus, downtown church, and may we show the world that there's headship and submission that dies for one another, that serves, where there's mutual agreement, where it oozes of sacrifice and love and not oppression and arrogance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. And we pray that you would meet us right here and you would lead us forward. Thank you for your word. It's clear. Uh, We have neglected it. But, oh God, I pray that you would bring us back into it and you would lead and guide us in a very real way in this topic. Father, bless us as men and women. Free us to be what you've made us to be. And may that be the heartbeat of this church. Uh, Lord Jesus, now we bring our tithes and offerings to you out of gratitude and praise because you're a God that deserves it. Build your kingdom, King Jesus, through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.